much horror business Driving late at night Psycho 78 12 o'clock Don't be late I said all this horror business Greetings and salutations My name is Justin Lore And I'm Liam O'Donnell And you are listening to episode 83 of Horror Business. Horror Business. And this is a special episode because this is our first transcontinental <laughs> episode of Horror <laughs> Business. I, I mean, I don't think I don't think it's transcontinental. Transcontinental. Trans, it's transcontinental. You're in a different fucking time zone. It's transcontinental. Uh, yeah, y'all. I've, I've moved to Chicago land. I say land because I'm not in Chicago city limits. I'm in the suburbs. Yeah. I'm in the suburbs of Chicago, Justin. I know. It sucks. You're all like, oh, yeah, I got this sausage, and the Bears are playing later. Oh, my God, I'm my cheese have hat. I'm some, some pop and drink ranch out of the bottle or whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. Whatever a Chicagoans do out there. Chicagoans. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I'm totally fine with being in the Chicago area now. I like Chicago a lot. I will say the suburb where I'm at is... One of the most bougie white places I've ever been in my life. Just out of control. Out of crazy. Also, third highest uh, COVID numbers in the state in this county. So that's fun. Bunch how, of rich, bunch of rich people who don't give a shit about their health, I guess. I don't know. No, they don't. <laughs> First off, this episode was inspired by a suggestion by the wonderful Dana Belletier. Bellatir. Dana Bellatir, who you I, might I, know. Yeah. Da- Dana is a lot because that's what usually when I say her last name, I go, Dana Bellatir. But that's not how you pronounce it. I mean, with your Midwestern, your Midwestern uh, larynx can't spit out that proper stop, Italian. Stop. Italian, stop. Yeah. Uh, no, Dana suggested we do. Oh, so we're doing 2010's horror movie, Black Swan, 2014's. Also a horror movie. It was way back in 2014. Oh, back before the plague came along and took everything away. Well, that's a little too real right yeah. now, so I don't like that back, joke. Back when life made sense <laughs> and we, we had a man who pretended to be a human being in the White House. Yes, yes, fair. Uh, we are doing, yeah, Black Swan and the Babadook. The theme of this episode is mental illness. I'll just say this as like a, I guess, disclaimer. As jocular as we may be, we do not take this issue lightly. Um, it's something I've dealt with, although not to the degree that the protagonists of these films have. So uh, if we do say anything that might be making light of it, please understand and please rest assured we are not at all making light of any mental illness, and it is a very serious subject. I mean, I think it's worth noting that Dana, uh, as a fan of the show uh, and a fan of horror, her interest in horror tends to be around her own experiences, which is uh, she grew up in a religious household, so she's interested in religious horror, and uh, she works in the mental health uh, field, and so mental health, both as a theme of horror and as a metaphor in horror, I think there's plenty of horror movies in which they don't directly deal with mental health, but we all know what this movie's actually about, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, that was just her thing, was, hey, here's some movies you guys haven't talked about yet, and we're going to talk about them, but yeah, for real, for real, we, we definitely take this seriously, and we don't want anyone to think we're trying to make light of, uh, you know, a, a serious thing. Yeah. Uh, you might know Dana from years ago when we got our first shirts printed. We said, who can we have on this shirt? <laughs> and we definitely said, our friend Dana needs to be on this shirt. So that's her on our shirt. 
100% that's Dana. I also want to be clear, too, that uh, this is one of the benefits of being uh, a Patreon supporter. And I think we have other patrons who I think would love to do this. Uh, That's what Patreon Messenger is for, y'all. We've put the call out before. We're putting it out again. If you are a a patron of a certain level, of which I forget now, but I think it's $10 and above, uh, you get to uh, pick something you want to hear us talk about. Now, maybe you prefer to do that for Cinepunks or for one of the other shows on the network. That's fine. But Dana is a big car business fan, so that's what she she asked, and we we are delivering hopefully to her and your pleasure, and we don't let anyone down with our analysis of these two films. Also, if you're a patron, uh, if you're a patron of ten dollars and above, fucking get at me with your goddamn address and your goddamn shirt size. We have a bomb ass Joy Division shirt for you, Joy Division rip. Like yeah, it's I, not just a Joy Division shirt. Yeah, it's all like yeah, we got we 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 made these unknown pleasure shirts. Like if you've seen on Instagram, like if you're a patron, just fucking message us with your address and your shirt size so I could send these fucking shirts to you. Jesus Christ! And also, if you're a Patreon a Patreon patron at all, also send your address because we got these really cool little pin sets made for you. Um, if you guys like Larry Cohen and um, Judge, which you might you might not. I hope you do. You'll like that. So, yeah, either way. Like, that's a perfect Venn diagram for this show. Do you like Larry Cohen? Do you like Judge? Then you should already be listening to horror business. Exactly. That should be our new motto. <laughs> it's not a spooky podcast. For, it's for spooky people. It's now, do you like Larry Cohen? Do you like Judge? If so, you should listen to our podcast. <laughs> that just rolls off the tongue. Oh, yeah. I'm a real wordsmith. That's what I'm known yeah, for. Yeah, you are. You are. You're, you're a regular... Um, William Shakespeare of the Midwest. I couldn't come up with a poet. I was just going to say. The, Bi- I was going to say Byron. Is that a poet? I think you're a regular Wild Oscar of the Midwest. I'm a regular E. E. Cummings. I hear he's a bad dude. Actually, you're thinking of T. S. Eliot. Oh, is that right? I don't know. Uh, I think everyone is a bad dude. I think everyone has ever <laughs> done anything cool is like a bad person. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, except for Stephen King and Patton Oswalt. They are, they are sterling figures that Stephen King can remember. <laughs> because, you know, there was that <laughs> period of the 80s where it's just a fucking blank slate. Look, we're not here to talk about our heroes or our villains. We're here to talk about these two movies, which are brought to you by you, our patrons. Patrons. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Our Patronuses. Oh, Patronuses, yeah. I've never seen a Harry Potter film. I don't get that reference. Um, you get it. Shut up. I mean, I picked it up because my niece loves Harry Potter, but, you know, whatever. So, uh, if you are interested in becoming a patron of the arts, of Cinepunks, of horror business, um, you can go to patreon.com backslash Cinepunks, and there's, like, various tiers on there that you can subscribe to. I don't have them inscribed in my heart like Liam does. But, like I said before, if you do, like, $10 or more, two months, after two months, we'll send you a fucking T-shirt. Um, there's a bunch of other cool shit. We'll do shout-outs. You can, you know, recommend an episode. If we like you enough, you can come on an episode. Any little bit helps. If it's a dollar, if it's $3, it's $20, $50. I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to press my luck anymore. Anything you give is greatly appreciated. So head on over to patreon.com backslash cinepunks. Give to your heart's desire. Any amount is appreciated, so if you do give, thank you. This episode is also brought to you by the people at Lehigh Valley <laughs> Apparel Creations. I mean, the, uh, the, the people and others. 
And others, yes. Heavy emphasis on others. Now, Liam, if I said to you, I needed to get a t-shirt made that has a picture of Link from The Legend of Zelda on it, and it said, this is Zelda, know the difference. Take that, libtards. I hate that so much. No, so do I, but it's actually, like, it actually, I made, it, I made that joke on Twitter a few years ago, like, specifically just to see, like, what would happen, and people got, like, kind of mad at it. Like, no one I knew, but it somehow got, like, retweeted and seen by people, and they're just like, man, fucking poser. It's like, okay. Anyway, if I got that shirt made, where would you tell me to go to get it made? Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley and beyond. And beyond, because you now are in beyond. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. Yeah. We got our hard business shirts printed there. Everything involving Cinepunks has been printed there, and it's amazing. You can go there. You can go to www.xlvacx.com and, 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 and look. They have, like, shots of their, their stuff on there, I think, maybe. I don't think so. In fact, the more I think about it, no, they don't. No, on their website, they definitely have uh, a variety of things. Uh, they also, uh, I think, have a link to the merch uh, bin where you can get some of the shirts they print for various bands and other causes. Uh, you can also check out the head of the company's record company. Square of Opposition Records. Yeah, because he sells a bunch of LVAC-related stuff there, too. That's where I got my LVAC Bart hat. They also have links on there to their various social media accounts, which they always post pictures of their work at. Um, so, yeah, just go there. They're good people. Uh, they're, a, they're not like these big fat cats like Amazon and, uh, you know, Tesla and, uh, you know, the other one. They're not like that. <laughs> I Chris, like the other one. Yeah. I mean, Chris Reject is a monster. Let me be clear about that. But he's not like a genocidal monster like Jeff Bezos is yet. So The worst. If anything that just poured out of my half-awake mouth interests you for whatever reason, and it should, head to www.xlvacx.com or head to, on, they're on Twitter, that the underscore LVAC. And I think it's the same on Instagram, just the underscore LVAC, for more information. And you can tell them that hard business sent you. Please do. That won't, yeah, that won't get you a discount, but they'll know what will, they'll know who sent you, and it'll it'll make him upset. It'll make Chris upset. Uh, I don't know that the episode will be out in time, but in case it is, uh, speaking of LVAC and something that was just on my mind, Chris and LVAC and Chris's little wrestling stuff is hosting an event at the Mahoning Drive-In. Friends of the show, the Mahoning. Uh, they're doing this real. Is it called real? Real what rumble. Is it Real Rumble Weekend. Yeah. Is that, that it? So basically, yep. it's, it's live wrestling and wrestling-related movies. And uh, my project, Rough Cut, uh, has made a shirt that we'll be selling exclusively at the event for Suburban Commando. And oh, so shit. I just want to put this out there now because people seem a little confused. We didn't forget to put Hulk Hogan on the shirt. We chose not to. Why is that? We decided that Christopher Lloyd was the actual hero of the movie. And okay. that also Christopher Lloyd is not a problematic racist. So uh, Christopher Lloyd is the center of the shirt and not Hulk Hogan. Uh, See, and if you don't like that, you're a mark and a fool. And uh, Hulk Hogan always sucked anyway. So uh, fuck you. Yeah. He's an overrated piece of shit anyway. Yeah. I mean, w would we have cut Rowdy Roddy Piper out of a shirt? No. Rowdy Roddy Piper is a god among men. 
But this is Hulk Hogan, so he doesn't get to be on the shirt. The hero of that movie is Christopher Lloyd. I see where I what I thought you were going with is that you guys were like, you know, cowed by uh, you know, legal ramifications oh, no. with your <laughs> I thought you were like, yeah, we don't want to fuck with uh, Hulk Hogan. We don't want to evoke the wrath of uh of the of the Hulkster. No, we just figured that people uh might prefer a suburban commando shirt that he wasn't on. I, I But no, what's I funny, can... we we posted it like I think just posted it like an hour ago and all, a lot of the comments are like, "Oh, wasn't Hulk Hogan in this movie? We're like, oh, was he? Oh, that's weird. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe he's in it. Fuck I don't Hulk remember. <laughs> anyway, so you guys should come out. I, I don't know if we'll get this episode out. I'm hoping we'll have this episode out before this weekend. So if you're listening to this and you're anywhere near the Mahoning Drive-In, uh, 14th and 15th, head on up and check it out. Live wrestling and movies. It's really going to be great. I'll be there. Come say what's up from a distance. From, from, a, a from a safe, from a safe distance, yeah. yes. From a safe distance. Now comes the time in the podcast where I, I cast my voice out across these seven hundred and fifty miles. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I say through the fucking magic of technology, Liam, what have you done recently that involves horror films? Well, I did watch a little movie called. Host. Yes, let's talk about it. Justin, what did you think of Host? Early reviews were a little too, like, overblown for me. Okay. Like, I kept seeing people being, like, talking about how, how like, it was one of the scariest movies they've ever seen. And, and that's fine. That's an opinion. I didn't think it was that scary, but I thought it was pretty fucking scary. I thought it was really effective, for the most part, it felt like I was witnessing something real as opposed to not to fucking toot my own horn. Go check out the one of the newest This Justin's where I talk about found footage. You know, this movie feels like we're not witnessing a film. We're witnessing, like, a record of something for the most part. You know, towards the end, it gets a little like, why are they fucking carrying this fucking laptop around? Nobody would do that in that situation. Um... But by and large, I think it passed the test of like found footage, and it was pretty fucking creepy. That shit with the filter and the, uh, the 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 you know what I'm, I don't want to spoil it, but like right, 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 right. That was so fucking spooky. It's a um, it's a good use of technology. I think they really did capture a lot of the weirdness that is Zoom and the weirdness that is living in a world in which uh, face recognition technology is just part of our fun social media. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a really believable and and you know, very effective uh, little fun, quite literally just under an hour, horror film, and I think everyone should check it out. Yeah, I gotta I gotta agree with you. I think it was pretty effective. I think that the parts that were there was a few uh, there was a few fake out parts towards the beginning that had me a little worried because I thought, oh, is this going to be a lot of like build up to nothing? But yeah. when, when stuff started to go, it, it really went. I think um, especially if you're someone who is scared of haunting things, of ghosties and sorts of things, this seems like a movie that would scare you. I think for me, I, I need something a little more uh, physical, I think, sometimes. But um, I thought the performances were uh, surprisingly, like really surprisingly good considering, you know, it's... It's a movie filmed on Zoom. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. But uh, I thought the it, it, it all worked really well. 
Uh, I, I very much enjoyed uh, the experience of watching it. Um, yeah, I think the idea that it's the scariest thing ever, though, you know, that's just the hyperbole of the internet. You know, that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I get it. Uh, you know, whatever. It's fine. I still enjoyed it. I think. Um, I don't know. I think it's important because we've only been going through this, this pandemic thing for a little while. I mean, I know it feels like forever, y'all, but how many other world events have happened where a movie was able to come out this quickly set in the midst of the event itself? Now, granted, if this all takes a turn for the worst, we're going to regret the idea that we made a movie already about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, if, if, you know, if, if we're, if we're at one point facing off against a uh, flag, you know, in the middle of the country, no one's going to turn yeah. to someone and go, yo, wasn't that host movie pretty good? You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah. Stu Redman is, isn't going to turn to fucking Glenn Bateman and say, Hey, uh, Glenn, that part where the filter was floating in the living room, that was some heavy shit. That was some it's heavy not gonna ha- shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. I also watched, uh, I rewatched something I hadn't watched in a long time. Uh, and this is for an upcoming episode of Cinepunk, so check it out. Uh, that movie, All the Colors of the Dark. Have you ever watched that? No, but I've heard good things about it. Yeah, it's very much, it's interesting because I, 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 up next on my watch list, I think it's this documentary, All the Colors of Giallo. And it's a sort mm. of history of giallo. Because this is very much considered giallo. It's part of the, the giallo tradition. And yet, um, it's so much more of like a weird, culty thing. And, you know, it has a lot of familiar giallo elements, but it also has some of the other stuff going on. So, I don't know. I, I, I think we've talked about this before, but I, I think giallo is a genre that we are new to. And it's hard because in Italian, right, um, even though giallo is just like yellow, it's referring to mystery and actually mystery can cover a pretty broad swath of films, you know? Yes. And in the Italian tradition, those mysteries tend to also have the sorts of blood and gore that in this country we associate with slasher films. So it's interesting to sort of understand how it is similar to horror, but also different from horror and, and what those relationships are like. Um, I don't know. I, I find the whole thing kind of fascinating to think about, uh, but I, I liked it a lot. I, I had I had watched it a long time ago, but I'll be honest, I had forgotten most of it. Really, really, uh, a lot of key elements I were not in my brain anymore. So I was glad I rewatched it. Um, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else I did horror. I, I will say, um, based off that short uh, series they did, I've been listening to Behind the Bastards. And, oh, my God. And that functions kind of like a horror thing for me because some of the stuff they cover is way upsetting just very very get under your skin like oh my god and uh i particularly listened to recently did you listen to the uh the bill cooper double yes i did that's pretty horrifying um frustrating to know how many things that influenced me via hip-hop in my youth came out of this crazy man's mouth so that's not great don't love that Um, yeah i mean it's also that i mean the thing with bill cooper that wasn't that wasn't that surprising to me, like how much of an asshole he was. Um, but the way they tied in um, the fact that like Bill Cooper, like I don't know why this had never dawned on me before, but like Bill Cooper, the thing that got me was like how Bill Cooper was essentially the, uh, the first domino to fall in the bullshit line of dominoes that have led us to the QAnon cult. Oh yeah, that that the that the basis, the real like roots of QAnon, come from Bill Cooper. Yeah, 
it's fucked up, man. Anyways, so yeah, that's that's about it, though. Uh, you know, guys, unless you count the horrors of moving and the the endless treachery of unpacking. Uh, otherwise, that's all I've gotten to do. How about you, Justin? What's what's going on with you, horror wise? Literally nothing. I, I watched the host. Um, I I know I went I went to the Mahoning Drive-in and watched um, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. That was pretty cool. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I didn't stick around for laser blast just because I brought my dog and there was fireworks and she was like, "We need to get the fuck out of here." And I was like, "Yes, we do." I'm trying to think. I went to. I mean, it's kind of sort of a horror movie if you ask the right people, and by the right people, I mean myself and Carly from the Final Girls. I saw Twister at the drive-in by myself. That's kind of a horror movie. It's got horror parts. Has Jamie Gertz in it. She was in The Lost Boys. That's a horror movie. Okay. Whatever, dude. Twister fucking rules. I'll fucking die on that hill. <laughs> I'm going to have to rewatch it at some point because you love it so much that now no. I'm like, maybe I'm wrong. It's funny. Friend of the podcast, uh, John Carlo DeMarchi, had never seen that movie. And it was just on TV the other day. And he came to work. He's like, yeah, so Twister was on the other day. And I watched it because you, like, you love that movie. I was like, oh, man, how fucking good is that movie? He was like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's not good at all. <laughs> well, fuck you. The movie's great. I'm going to watch it, and then I'm going to share my opinion on this very podcast. It has, the, it has the only good post-David Lee Roth Van Halen song in it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> There's too many qualifiers on that to really mean anything. Yeah, whatever. It also has the guy who dies in Mulholland Drive out of fright when he fucking sees this, the spooky bum behind the, di- the diner. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't really done anything else. Um, I've done a, a ton of writing for this, Justin. I'm taking this week off just because I don't, mean to, I don't mean to be like, man, it was fucking exhausting, but, like, getting my, like, favorite soundtracks together that weren't necessarily, like, the big hitters. You know, like, I had to, like, really, you know, what, what, what soundtracks, if, in case anyone didn't know, there was just a edition of this, Justin, that was put out where I talk about some podcasts I like, and I didn't want to write about, like, too many of the obvious ones, so I was like, what am I going to write about that are, like, not alienating, but at the same time not like, yeah, I really like Ennio Morricone's The Thing. It's, like, a, the best horror movie soundtrack of all time. It's just that good. It's great, but I wanted to write about something more than that. So there was a solid, like, week where all I was doing was thinking about that and writing about that and rewriting it, and it just, like, fucking burned me out. So that's all I was really doing. I think writing can be actually a lot of work. I think sometimes we play that down as actual work because, um, you know, we think of manual labor as the only work. But actually, if you're really writing well and you're putting the thought into writing well, I think that's actual work. I don't think it's worth playing it down. Now, I would rather do that than make a brick wall, but that doesn't make it not work. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I kind of enjoy, I had a, you know, not to get too far off into like a fucking history of Justin Lore's involvement with the fucking labor movement. I had like a manual labor job my first year of college and I, I loved it. I mean, now, would I enjoy doing it for 40 years? Probably not. I look at my father and I think, I don't want that. But, you know, I don't mind it. I feel I you. Don't got, I don't got city hands like Chicago boy Liam O'Donnell does that are all, that are just blister from counting money. Like you. So blistered from counting money. What money? Jesus. I don't remember I was the qu- last time I had money. I was quoting I was quoting Jaws. You got city hands. Yeah, I know, I know. I just was offended at the idea that I might have money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. 
Yeah, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Darren Aronofsky's straight-up, terrifying, fucking mindfuck fever dream of a horror movie, Black Swan. Black Swan. We'll be right back. I had the craziest dream last night. I was dancing the white swan. He promised to feature me more this season. You've been there long enough. And you're the most dedicated dancer in the company. A new production needs a new swan queen. A fresh face to present to the world. Which of you can embody both swans? The white and the black. All I see is the white swan. I see you obsessed getting each and every move perfectly right, but I never see you lose yourself. Watch the way she moves. She's not faking it. Hey, it's up. Taking the role of our new swan queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. I think you're gonna be amazing. I knew the white swan wouldn't be a problem. The real work would be your metamorphosis into her evil twin. You could be brilliant. But you're a coward. What's she doing here? He made me your alternate. She's after me. She's trying to replace me. Nobody's after you. destroying you. I dance the black swan for you. What happened to my sweet girl? She's gone! And we are back to talk Woo. about 2010's let's see what let's see what IMDB calls it. 2010's drama thriller Black Swan. Drama uh, directed by thriller. I mean, technically, this is dramatic. It is thrilling, but it's so much more than that. Uh, written by Mark Heyman, who wrote the screenplay, and Andres Hines, who wrote the, the story of it. Directed by Darren Aronofsky, uh, starring Natalie Portman in, I'll say this without a trace of sarcasm, I'll say this is the per performance of her career. Uh, Mila Kunis, Vincent Castle as a complete fucking sack of shit. Barbara Hershey, who is incredible in everything she even looks at, and then the homie Sebastian Stan as a uh, a nobody in a bar who doesn't even doesn't even get the fucking second base. What a shame. It's true. It's true. She could have fucked the Winter Soldier, and instead she didn't. Maybe I don't know. Have sex with Mila Kunis. Oh yeah, none of that. I mean, that's all. <laughs> who knows what's going on? Okay, so I think let's let's acknowledge first off that I think a lot of people who haven't seen this movie and some who have will be surprised that you referring to it as a horror film. I think when this movie came out, because of who Aronofsky is, which is someone who, for some reason, has the stink of respectability on him, which is weird, because if you really think about his movies, I mean, uh, you know, Requiem for a Dream is supposed to be an art film, and an old man yells, ass to ass, in it. You know, like, that's not exactly, like, uh, you're, well, high art. You're all... Uh, 
you're also missing the part where David Keith takes his dick out and says, it ain't out for air, which makes my fucking skin want to leave my body. I well, fucking hate that part. Well, that's the thing. I think he, he, his, I think it's, uh, it's easier almost to accept him if you think what he's doing is uh, high-minded or something. And, and, and that, yeah. I'm not saying that his films don't qualify as art, but you know, I think most movies qualify as some kind of art. That doesn't change the fact that he makes exploitation films. He makes uh, well-directed, high-minded exploitation films. You know, rough, oh, yeah. crazy movies. And this is no different. This is a campy, over-the-top, horrifying film in which Natalie Portman gives, without a doubt, the best performance we could ever expect from her, ever. She's unbelievable in it. Um, I also think Mila Kunis is good as well. And I think she there's brings a, a, a certain reality a, to the role. Yeah, there's there's not a bad performance in this film. Um, yeah, the mom. I, I was a little worried about the mom, but I think she works as well. Um, I mean, look, guys. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who haven't seen it. So spoilers. Um, Natalie Portman has a monster bird neck at one point in the film. That scene is so fucking scary. Oh my god, I didn't mean to yell. But the scene when she's wrestling herself, I don't know. Yeah. Just, she's like strangling Mila Kunis and her fucking yeah. neck starts to stretch. That was the scene where I was like, if they show her with a long bird neck, I'm going to vomit out of fucking fear. I mean, it's worth knowing that that is a practical effect that they made this huge, scary bird neck thing for oh her. Oh, my God. And they only show it for one second, but there was, for some insane reason, there was an art display of the stuff from this film. And you, if you s- ever saw the actual artifice of it, you would think this was a fucking... Like, like it looks like a set piece from a Charles Band movie. You know what I mean? Like, it's like out of control how horrifying it is and it only doesn't play off as horrifying as it is in the movie because you see it very briefly yeah which i i actually think makes it more effective and sure um you know not not to uh i felt the way about the neck stretching scene and this is gonna you're gonna be like what are you what are you doing here there's a scene in the very beginning of it chapter one when george denborough gets killed when there's an over-the-head shot of him crawling away from the, the, the sewer grate, and he's, like, bleeding and, and crying, and you just see the fucking hand for, like, a second. And it's just quick enough to be like, I hope they don't show that fucking grab him. And because they don't, it actually makes it scarier because you're left to imagine. And I feel that's the same way about this. It's like, you see the neck start to stretch, and you're like, holy shit, this is going to be a, a nightmare to witness. And then they cut away, and it's just like... For me, that left the rest of the... Fi- I mean, that's kind of towards the end. But the rest of the film, it was just like, what else are they going to show? Because this is where they're going. This is where they're... This is, they've, they've admitted that they're willing to do this. Where else are they going to go? I think it's, uh, it's worth acknowledging right up front here that uh, there are a ton of people who hate Aronofsky. You know, that he is not necessarily uh, loved by everyone. Um, I think some of the folks who hate him is maybe because if you think about his movies, he does trade a lot in female pain. Yes. And I think it's worth acknowledging that. that like, And maybe that's what the movie Mother is about. That maybe, in a way, Mother is his acknowledgement of his constant torture of his female characters. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on there. I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's... 
I think if you make the kind of movies he does, it's it's really hard not to do that, especially because um, I think for a lot of us we find those female characters more compelling. However, I'm just I don't I don't find him a I don't find him I don't find anything in him to be offended by. I think maybe some of, maybe he should think about some different choices in the future, but I think this movie works, and I don't think Natalie Point, Natalie Portman's character is inhuman or. Like she's over the top, she's campy. If you're looking for a realistic representation of mental illness, this is not it. Like this is not. No, this is definitely a, a house of psychotic women, over the top, crazy thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't think in it is anything more misogynistic than just whatever a male director would do. Do I think that this same script and these same the same cast with a female director might have actually turned in uh, a different, maybe even better movie? Yeah, definitely, of course, because I think the gendered perspective of a director matters. And I do think that, you know, female directors create different movies and sometimes uh, create a movie that a dude couldn't possibly do. But I don't think the distance that he has makes the movie bad. I do think uh, it, it, it does create a certain kind of movie where while Natalie Portman's character, I think, is human we do have a certain distance from her, but we have a certain distance from all the characters in this movie. There's not a lot of like superhuman moments with any of these people because that's not what this movie is. And the fact that people treated this like some sort of like artsy character piece at the time, it's just the psychotic nature of Hollywood that this thing came out and people were like, Oh, it's like the red shoes. What What the fuck are you talking about? She turns into a giant bird people. Come on. Like this is this is this she is a, stabs herself. Yeah, this is a slightly more artistic Cronenberg film. Right, one hundred percent. You know, like I, I, I think I wouldn't even say artistic. I would say Darinovsky. Darinovsky is like my. That's my what he is. Darin, Darinovsky. Darinovsky. He's more stylish. He has yes. a style, and people conflate that style with indie art films. But I don't think it's that at all. He just has his way of shooting a movie. Yeah. One thing about uh, Aronofsky and his uh, accusations of misogyny against him, I do think that in some of his some of his films, the suffering of female characters exists only as like a way to highlight the suffering of male characters, particularly Requiem yeah. for a Dream and like the Wrestler. Like I think that like all the pain of female characters in the Wrestler was just like, look how terrible Mickey Rourke is. And that, in turn, was, like, fueled his, like, self-pity and his self-loathing. And it was, like, these female characters didn't really have much agency in those films, but they were suffering greatly just to be, like, we're going to hurt the male character. Where in this movie, there is... I mean, it's, it's not cool that this pain is being inflicted upon this woman, but I don't think this film is as misogynistic as some of his other work has been charged of being. I mean, I still like The Wrestler... But I think that Requiem Room for a Dream, it's a brilliant movie, but whew, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I, it, it certainly doesn't care a whole lot for its characters. It'd be interesting to compare Requiem Room for a Dream with, um, oh, what is the first Safdie Brothers movie? Heaven Only Knows, I think is what it's called. Okay. But uh, the Safdie Brothers, you know, they, they're really into humanizing criminals and their first movie, I think it's called Heaven Only Knows or Heaven Can Wait, one of the two. But it's, uh, it's basically a film... It's like a, a slow journey through the life of two people who are in love who are also heroin addicts. Mm, and fun. Oh, oh, man. 
But unlike Requiem for a Dream, it's not trying to be a horror film. It's trying to represent the good and the obviously bad of who these people are. You know what gotcha. I mean? Gotcha, yeah. Um, I don't think Requiem is interested in that. and But I don't think, again, if what you're looking for is um, nuanced human characters... Let me steer you away from Mr. Aronofsky, you know? I mean, yeah. it's telling that in Mother, there is not a single real person, right? Everyone is a walking caricature, and that's the point of the movie. I think that's I think that's where he lives the most comfortable, is when you are compelled by the narrative, but you don't need to know the nuanced inner life of the character. Interesting. Would you say that Aronofsky is incapable of understanding basic human behavior? No, not at all. I just think that he that's not what's compelling for him as a director. And so he would rather have a uh, a very compelling caricature than someone with a lot of like nuance and depth. Gotcha, gotcha. Can we talk about like the actual legitimate some of the things so, like uh, I, we talked about the next stretching, okay? I think the way this film escalates some like the scarier aspects of it particularly like the, you know how it starts out with she has those like pictures in a room that she's drawn and right. how it starts out you just see the one i think it like winks at her or something and you're like did i just see that because it's like very quick very subtle um and then it just like escalates from there there's all these like tiny little moments where you're like did i see what i think i saw i hope i didn't but i think i did um and then once we get into like the doppelganger territory and um, the, like, how her reflection is a lot of times not drastically acting different from her, but just off enough where you, you, you notice it, I just think that's really fucking effective at creating this real sense of like nightmare insanity where you're questioning your own ability to perceive reality. I, just, I don't know. Just some. There's something about the 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 the, the, the little nuances. I, not nuances. The little um, glimpses she'll see of her own face on other people. I don't know if it's like the 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 sort of like primordial fear of like a doppelganger, but that was just super creepy to me. I think um, you are particularly not bothered by CGI, and uh, whereas some well, people. Yeah, th I there think were are scenes allergic to CGI. So yeah. if you're someone who is allergic to CGI, where you overreact to it, those are going to bum you out. Not the not that when it first starts, but towards the end, there's a lot of this CGI trickery going on. Whatever, whatever. For me, it doesn't bum me out at all because the film is about her fragile mental state. Yes, and of course, you could ask yourself, much like the other movie that we're going to be discussing. Um, when does the fragile mental state spill over into reality? And I think these two movies have two different answers to that. But I also think if your way of experiencing movies is to sit there and go, okay, what part of this is real in a literal, real way? And what part of this isn't real in a literal, real way? I'm going to spend the movie trying to figure that out. You're bad at watching movies. Yeah, you don't deserve to watch movies. <laughs> That's just not an help. If the... It would be a helpful question if the movie was interested in that question. If the movie was like, well, this is what the movie's about. We're going to try to figure out what's real and what's not. But that's not what this is about. This is about telling a narrative about someone falling apart. And maybe, I mean, 
let's let's throw this one out there. If we're going to be literalists, then maybe all of this is tulpas or some shit. I don't fucking know. <laughs> maybe it's her fragile mental state is manifesting reality around her. It doesn't fucking matter. Like, either the movie is compelling or it's not. And I think you just accept it. Now, you could say that the way that it represents that doesn't work for you. Maybe you needed more crazy shit. Maybe you needed less crazy shit. But for me, I actually felt like the use of perception, where you're seeing things the way she's seeing them, and it's really hard to know what's real and what's not, was effective. And it really Absolutely. put me in her mental state of anxiety and freaking out. And I think like it's really important to highlight again what you said. This is a horror movie. I get it. There's ballet, and you see ballet, and you think, oh, it's it's the arts. But, I mean, look at fucking Stage Fright, man. Like, just because yeah. there's dancing doesn't mean that it's not a horror movie. Exactly. And also a movie about dancing and how we can't trust birds. Yeah, that's true. You cannot trust birds. No, um, I, I think the whole thing of, like, trying to understand what's real and what's not, it, it's just like, if that's what you're going to do when you're watching this movie, if you're going to sit here and be like, i I got to figure out what what she's what is what is objectively real and what exists only in her in her mind you don't want to watch a movie you want to fucking put together a jigsaw puzzle go do that sure um because you're once you understand what is real and what is not real the movie is no longer scary well i think there are movies that invite you to try to figure that out but the movie will do that like a good movie if what they're saying is this is what the movie's about is that we have to sort through this and figure out what was happening. What The movie will lead you there, buddy. You don't yeah. have to sit there and be the fucking master detective. Try You're not Hercule per- Perot trying to fucking piece it together. Just watch the movie, man. Let it wash over you. And then Have later, a bad time. A, just watch it. That's a fun discussion to have with your friends at the diner afterwards. You know, just sitting around with people being like, so uh, do you think the Mila Kunis stuff was real or did she just uh, stab herself with a mirror? I mean, for me... It's not that confusing, man. She stabbed herself with a mirror. But, you know, for someone else who apparently this matters to, like, cool, that's fun for you to figure it out. But you're not experiencing the movie if you're asking those questions alone the whole time. In my mind. That's just my feeling. You're being too nice about this. I am being too nice about this. But that's just how I go right now. I'm in a nice yeah. mood, so. Yeah. Um, I Okay, so I will say this. This movie, it's unclear if Aronofsky knows that he's making a camp film. I would I would say this is something that falls into the conundrum, which I didn't know existed until we covered it on Cinepunks, but I think this is a fair conundrum. I will call this the Showgirls Paradox. The Showgirls Paradox is this. Did our, our buddy, Verhoeven, know what he was making when he was making it? And does his knowledge or lack thereof matter for the thing itself. So, does Aronofsky know whilst making Black Swan that while this is in fact a very scary horror movie, it is also a ridiculous over-the-top representation of ballet in which no one is acting like anyone actually acts in ballet and no. in fact is so over-the-top that if someone said, I'm making a local musical version of this filled with drag queens, I would say, fucking perfect. That is amazing. Because, it's- go ahead. I was going to say, it, it's funny that you should say that because, like, when you watch this movie and, like, Vincent Cassell is so filled with, like, you know, passion and, and suffering. But then when you really listen to what he's saying, you're like, you're not offering anything fucking constructive. No. No. You're not giving any, you're just like, like, when he's like, 
you're not feeling it. You're like, okay, what? <laughs> tell me how to feel it. You know, like he says all this like big dramatic shit, and you're like, oh my god, he's so full of shit, and that's the point. He's that, just this. Yeah. He's this empty fucking character that means nothing, and it's great. That's my inclination as well, and it's important to remember he is the director, right? So he is the representation of Aronofsky in the movie, and uh, <laughs> he's a horrible abuser who doesn't really know how to direct anyone and just tries to manipulate people to get what he wants. Um, I, you could say Aronofsky's not smart enough to know that he's kind of like that character, or you could say, no, the, he knows that exactly. He's criticizing and making fun of himself. He's making fun of the image of the director. He's making fun of the image of the artistic man behind the scenes who's truly responsible for these, you know, for this ballet. When he's not putting in any effort, he's breaking these men and women's bodies to get the performance he wants out of them. And then who gets to go out and bow and get all the credit? This motherfucker who's done yeah. literally nothing. Who's added nothing? And so, I, I, I sure, is it possible Aronofsky has no idea and this movie has no self-awareness? That is entirely possible, and that actually, to me, makes the movie just as fun. Also a fun <laughs> time to watch, but I don't think that's true. I think Aronofsky knows what's up. I think this is, I think the campiness and the ridiculousness and the, 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 the oh my lord, stay out of my room mom-ness of it all is intentional, and that's what makes it so great that it's both campy and to me maybe not to other people but to me and justin really scary parts of it are really fucking scary yeah i mean it it, 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 it's scary for so many reasons i mean visually there's a lot of terrifying uh, shots you know like i said the reflections the doppelganger the body horror aspect of it um but then just the simple idea of being afraid of your own mind is so fucking scary. And it's such it's such an understated thing when it comes to mental illness is like the the, the very idea that you cannot trust your yourself. Like your actual sense of self. You cannot trust that. There's nothing scarier in the world. I think it's important to highlight too, there's a lot of suggestion in the film that she's had stuff go on in the past. That yes. there's a past that she's that she's trying to get away from that is resurfaced itself, which suggests the true self being revealed, the past catching up with you, that everything that's been good is just like a brief, a brief eye of the storm, and now we're back to the way things really are. All those mm-hmm. kind of feelings, which are all sort of themes, both in you know mental health art, but also like in people's lives. And so, if the anxiety of that doesn't translate to you, I don't know how to make it translate, but like. I think for a lot of folks, they're wa- they're probably watching this thinking like, oh, God, oh, oh, you know, because they're feeling that for themselves, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's all, uh, I forget the name. There's He's a famous Chinese philosopher, the dream of the butterfly. You know, I had a dream I was a butterfly and then I woke up. Or was I a, or am, am I, was I, was I a man dreaming of a butterfly and I'm now awake? Or am I a butterfly dreaming I'm a man? Um, sure, right is she a swan dreaming she's a woman or is she a you know what I mean like it's just it really laughs in the face of your ability to judge any sense of objective reality and that's so fucking frightening and yeah like you said you see the idea of um, is my pleasant life the eye of the storm is there something on the horizon that is just like just out of sight that's gonna come here and fucking lay waste to what I've made also terrifying 
I think also there's a there's an inherent critique in the film around the idea of perfection that that she is motivated by, powered by, and destroyed by this idea of perfection that is one of the things in art that people struggle with. That and and what does perfection even mean? Like I don't know the movie gets this far, but one of the things that we could be thinking about when we're you know dealing with these high arts is the idea that perfection itself is a culturally conditioned you know her performance if she's dancing this way or that way how we're interpreting those movements is all related to cultural conditioning and and history and tradition that in and of themselves nothing about those movements have any meaning other than the meaning that we put on it you know what i mean and so i think the film also sort of pushes that idea which again we're making it sound a little highfalutin she also turns into a gross bird. So I think, you know, I think it's it's sort of the the combo there of like the movie is dealing with these anxieties and these passions in high art, but it is dealing them in the context of an exploitation horror film, which is partly what makes it so brilliant, right? That it's it is it is itself not trying to be high art. It is commenting on the high art while being an over the top crazy person movie. Yes. I agree. I love that. I love that. Um, I got to see this at the Philadelphia Film Fest. It was, I don't think it was the premiere, but it was one of the early showings. And Aronofsky was there. Uh, and I will say he was very uninterested in answering questions about this movie. Whew. Oh, boy. Uh, and the crowd was very uninterested in asking questions about the movie. A lot of the people who were in the film were actually there. Like There were people who were connected to the film there, like dancers and stuff. And I think that's all people were interested in talking about was their connections to dancing. And uh, man, he, he eventually was like, all right, that was enough questions. Let's all get a drink, huh? And then that was the oh, end of the Q&A. So at no point, someone didn't say, yeah, so like them two girls, was they like gay? I mean, I just thought they was like gay. So was they really gay? Someone might have actually said that, actually. Uh, well, no, someone, remember when we saw Starfish? No, I'm saying, no, I'm... I'm <laughs> I know, but I'm saying yeah. once you brought it up, I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. Ugh. Someone might have actually said that. Uh, anyways, it was a bad Q&A. It was very bad. Anyways, Darren Aronofsky. Uh, yeah. So, um, hey, Dana, thanks for suggesting this. I'm glad we got to cover this. Yeah. And thanks for she suggested the Babadook, too, didn't she? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was we're going to get to the Babadook next. Yeah. I'm just saying this is not one I think I would have thought of to cover on the show. Whereas the no. Babadook, like we were definitely going to get there. Yeah. So that's. Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, a horror movie. Not a dramatic thriller, not a psychological uh, expose or whatever. It's a fucking horror film. Expose. I like the idea. Expose. I'm showing you what it's really like in ballet when people turn yeah. into bird ladies. The cutthroat world of body horrific transmogrification ballet. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the movie that NPR couldn't shut up about back in 2014. No, I'm sorry. That was It Follows, that everyone was like eating their own shit over. Still a terrifying movie. Uh, we're gonna I was going to say, I love that movie. Yeah, I know, yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about 2014's The Babadook. Dick, dick, dick. <laughs> we'll be right back. Where'd you get this? On the shelf. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. 
Nothing bad's gonna happen, Sam. Did he think that about my dad before he died? Who sees things as they are, that one? I promise to protect you if you promise to protect me. Oh my God, did he hurt anyone? The boy has significant behavioral problems. This monster thing has got to stop, all right? It's just a book. It can't hurt you. back to talk about the, again, with the fucking weird things on IMDb, the drama film of 2014, The Babadook, written and directed by Jennifer Kent in her feature debut, yes, starring Essie Davis, Noah Wiseman, and Daniel Henshaw, um, you know what this movie's about, gay icon, The Babadook, visits a, 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 a troubled child and helps him and his mother get through a hard time. Oh, God. That, that's what the movie's about. Now, this movie, um, this movie fucked with me when I first saw it. Uh, not as bad as it did with my coworker, though, who has a special needs child. They were haunted by this movie. And I think it sort of speaks to people coming from that background more than a quote-unquote normie uh, background. Right. Uh, I can't even imagine how horrific this film must have been for someone with like an autistic child or something. Out of control. Absolutely. Uh, traumatizing. <sighs> I, it's hard to like even say, like I feel like the movie ha- goes through three sections, right? Because it's really like a um, spooky kid movie. Yes. Right? Then it's a uh, psychotic woman movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it's like a... a monster movie as metaphor for grieving and depression movie. It's also all of those things at the same time. Right. Because even when that kid is like, I love you, mommy. I won't let him get you. And you're like, that kid is going to murder her in like 10 years. Oh, really? I didn't feel that way at all. I, I, so, okay. So the, my experience of this film has changed since I am also a parent. And the beginning of the movie I very much felt all of those parent anxieties that I didn't feel when I saw it when I wasn't a parent. When I wasn't a parent, I just was like, what a creepy kid. 
And then watching it now, I'm like, look at the way everyone is judging that child and that woman because he acts weird. And it yeah. just like made me feel very bad and very angry. And then when she starts to lose it, I was like, oh, this is very dark. Oh, God. But that's how I felt the first time I watched it, which was just like that whole section is hard. I think it's hard for a number of reasons. Uh, and it very much upset me. And then, I mean, I, I, you know, I'll slightly agree with, I think, some of the criticism of the movie, which is like, I feel like when the Babadook shows up in its most physical form, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it makes the movie bad, but it's a tension reliever for me. I was like, oh, God, at least now he has someone to throw his ball at that isn't her, you know? <laughs> like, at least he doesn't have to stab his mom in the leg again, you know? Like, there, there's there's something about that, phys- that, that presence, which is easier for me. It was less anxiety-inducing for me than her absolutely fucking losing her shit. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a, a few notes I took about uh, uh, some of the scenes that... By some, I mean two. Um, the two scenes in this movie that I, I felt just like fucking nailed it. There's the scene when she's at the the grocery store with her son, and he's like playing with this little girl, and she's like, "Oh, you know, don't bother those nice people." And then the little girl's mom comes over, and she's like, "Oh, aren't you like the sweet little boy?" She's like, "Your mom is so lucky to have you." And then it cuts to uh, the mom's face, and she's just like. And there's just this weight there that is so gorgeous and horrifying where you could see her, the fucking gears rolling in her head. Like, I had a husband who is a gorgeous man who loved me, and I loved him, and we were going to have this happy life, and fucking look where I am now. And it's, it's just crushing in that single moment. And then what I think the scariest scene in this entire movie is, and I'll, I will go to bat for this, and I, I cannot be convinced otherwise, the police station scene. Oh, wow, really? Yes. There's just something about that that I, I, it just upsets me to such an unreasonable degree, but it, it, <laughs> it is what it is. It's definitely unsettling. Like, you see them and you feel all of her feelings of, like, what are they thinking about me? How are they judging me right now? Like, ooh, it's, it's such an under-the-skin, like, uncomfortable moment. But it's also, like, I mean... <sighs> That's like the scariest part by far. It's the most effective element of that is like they're judging me. It shows like her hands, which are like blackened from burning this book. Um, and the cop's not being unreasonable. He's like, well, can I see the book? And she's like, oh, I burned it. And he's like, okay. And well, he called me. Was it the same person? Well, yeah, but you burned the book. Like nothing this cop is saying is very like belittling like, this guy is just doing what he should be doing and trying to get the details of, like, how can I help these people? But you can hear it in her voice, like, they're fucking judging me. And then on top of that, there's the coat in the background, which sucks. And there's this light makeup on this guy's face that is both unnatural and completely inhuman. Right. And I just think it's the perfect blend of like, holy shit, this is, this is, I'm in hell right now. It is an upsetting, it's one of those moments that feels very real too. Like there are a number of upsetting moments in the film that don't feel that real, I guess is how you would put it. 
Um, but that moment is very like grounded in this reality, but then also upsetting. Yeah. I mean, there's the obvious imagery of the Babadook, which is scary, but we've seen it before. You know, it's like it just like not the like the imagery of of this thing is is undeniably unsettling, but it's the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Sure. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's nothing that's like existentially frightening. Of course, I think the police scene really speaks to a deeper and more relatable fear. Okay. Okay. I feel that. I I know there's a lot of controversy, I guess, or disagreement around the kid in the movie. Because I think some people find that kid hella annoying. Just real frustrating. Yeah, but that's the point. <laughs> I mean, I think he's good. I think he, yeah. he works. And I all the moments, maybe this is just, again, my parentness coming through. All the moments where he stops and reminds her, like, well, I love you, Mommy. Like, I love you no matter what, you know? For me, and for Susan, too, who I made watch this with me, and it really was... Uh, probably a bad call because she does not do well with scary movies <laughs> but i made her watch it with me we both every time he would say stuff like that i wasn't like oh what an annoying piece of shit i was like oh yeah it's 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 a very like this this kid first off this kid is fucking six years old like holy shit they nailed it with right. with, with with casting and secondly when this kid is like telling her like i'm always going to be there for you and i know you don't love me but i still love you that is heartbreaking it's so sad. Because he understands, like, I don't get to have a dad. And I think this kid probably knows, like, you wish, you would rather have my father be alive and have me not be, which she actually says at one point, I think. Oh, yes. And he's, he's, not a, he's obviously not a stupid kid. So, like, he knows this, and he's still like, I don't care. I still love you. I but mean, I, th- I think that's part of the horror of the film, like, Anyone who's had a, a loved one like losing their shit and saying really mean, awful shit to you, I think you will resonate with parts of this movie because that's sort yes. of how it manifests. That's how this presence inside of her manifests itself. Um, I, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the end. How do you feel about how the movie wraps up? How do you feel about how the movie stands up as a film related to in some sense, mental illness. Like, like, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. So, I know a lot of people think that this ending is, like, sort of corny because it kind of makes the Babadook, like, you know how at the end she's like, it's okay, you're okay, it's fine. And she's, like, talking the Babadook down. And it makes it almost like a pet. Um... Some years back, when I first started um, on medication, the way I explained to my therapist how medication was helping was the depression and the anxiety and the fucking manic weirdness inside of me, it was still there. It just didn't go away. But the, the metaphor I used was like, if you imagine an aquarium, like a, like a nice aquarium, like the Baltimore Aquarium, and then you got the fish and the coral reefs and they're all bright and everything's fine. And then someone just dumped fucking oil in there. And it sucks. And the oil's all over everything and it's shitty and no one can be happy and you can't enjoy the fish. What going to therapy and, and being on medication did for me was it didn't take the oil out of the tank. It just put the oil in one ball 
in the middle of the tank. So the oil is still there, but it's not fouling everything else up. Mm. And I think that the end of this movie it is a very realistic depiction of how people live with, with, with mental illness. It doesn't go away. It's always there. Um, as a survivor uh, of you know, a, attempted suicide, I, I liken it to being an addict. There's no such thing as an ex-addict. You're an addict. You could relapse at any time. And I think this film, it made a wise choice and a responsible choice in its depiction of mental illness, not as something that is banished, but as something that is managed and something that is maintained and is still always dangerous. Because when she goes downstairs at first, it fucking attacks her and it almost gets her. And I think that's such an important thing to keep in mind is that like, the war's never over. You know, there is no happily ever after. It's always there. You just live with this thing that you still have to maintain, but it's not, you know, creeping around your room at night. It's not, you know, making you want to kill your kid. You know, there's a genuine happiness at the end of the movie, even though they still have this thing locked in the basement. It's still there. It still exists. It's still a very real thing, but it's not fouling everything else up. And I think that is the most realistic depiction uh, of dealing with grief and anxiety and, and mania and all that that I've ever seen in a film. I, uh, I got to agree. I think it's very much to like, I think the, some of the people who go at it because they just want a dark, they want all horror movies to be sad. Sorry. That's just not how, uh, if, if every horror movie is going to end the same way, then what the fuck are we doing? I don't know why yeah. I care about that. But I think the other reason is some people feel like, well, this metaphor doesn't work for all mental illness. Like every condition is different. Whatever. Yeah, I know. In fact, I don't know that she's really clear that she's only describing what we would call mental illness. Like this could be grief. This yeah. could be the sadness of, uh, I mean, she's gone through it, it's uh, to be fair. She, her can, what she's going through is different than what a lot of other people go through. There are plenty of people who struggle with serious mental health, uh, who have no inciting incident. It's a it's something that happens to them, and it's not just like also their dad died. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they're, they're, it doesn't. You don't need to have that. In the same way, maybe what she's going through is not the same. It, maybe it's its own thing. Maybe it's about grief. But the point of the movie is not. Hey guys, I've come up with a clinical solution for your fucking issue lock it up in the basement and feed it worms that's not the point of the fucking thing the point is there's a horrifying thing and it's part of her and it doesn't get to go away and i think we could relate that to all kinds of shit that we all deal with that all of us maybe not all of us maybe you're a happy motherfucker but for most of us if we had to think of something that might be in the basement that we have under control that isn't actually gone away that we could fucking think of something i think most people if they're honest could relate something in their lives or at least in a loved one's life to this movie and let the metaphor live and breathe. And so therefore, yeah, it is a hopeful ending because she can live with it. But I find that better 
than all these other fucking horror movies, especially the ones from the 80s that everyone jerks off over, where all you got to do is find the fucking MacGuffin and then the world is a better place. That That is literally white people bullshit. That is literally like, yo, once we find the secret weapon, the world will be safe again and we won't have to fear this. That's not real. The reality is that pain continues on that suffering and evil and whatever else you want to say the movie is about continues on. And that's what this movie does. And uh, because it is related to her, it is a part of who she is. It's a part of her life. She's figured out a way to live with it. And that is, again, it's the sort of hopeful I like because it feels like you could relate it to real life. But again, the point of the fact that you could relate it to real life is not to say, and therefore this is a literal representation of real life. Come on guys. Come on. Yeah. Like, Fuck you. Come on. Like we, we all know this is just her taking a shot. She's created a monster and she's trying to figure out a way to deal with that monster that takes it seriously, but still allows for growth and a change at the end. So it takes a shot. Do I think it's perfect? I don't know, but I, I get real frustrated with some of the criticism of the ending. Yeah. I mean, it, it's also worth noting that this isn't a, a happy ending. Right. It, I mean, it, it's not overly dark, but by no means is it like... Um, she still murdered a dog. Her yep. son still fucking stabbed her. Yep. Her son still has to live with the shit she said. But it's important to understand that what the ending is is like, look, there's hope, and she's doing what she can. This thing might get out of the basement at some time in the future. I fucking pray that there's not a Babadook too. But you know, like it could, it never goes away. It's always there. Um, and I, I think people who think that's a happy ending, they're, uh, they're uh, like I said about the people with Black Swan, they shouldn't be watching movies. They don't deserve it. Justin's always banning people from movies. I am. <laughs> I don't know. I really like this movie. Uh, it, it hits close to home. Uh, I think it's super effective. I think it's creepy, but not like stereotypically creepy. Right. Um, I just, I, I just think it's, it, it's, it's one of those movies that's worth the praise that was heaped upon it. Like it was kind of annoying how it was like post horror and all the elevated horror and all that. Oh, shit. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's the same as Black Swan, right? Like I think Black Swan got treated like it was an art film instead of a horror film, or it follows. Like people treated it follows like, well, this is the the replacement for John Carpenter or some crazy shit. It's like all these movies are just pretty good, and I get it that like. You know, good new horror is sometimes hard to come by, you know, and especially good new horror that is like original. This felt original to me. It didn't feel like, oh, Babadook is just ripping off Mommy Dearest or some shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was its own thing. But uh, but we can't let that turn us off to the movie. The fact that other people are jerking off about the end of horror. Like horror is not over. You know what I mean? Like it, it changes and it goes through different formations and whatever and i'm i'm looking forward to someone coming up with some new way to show us horror like sure i'm all about innovation but the to say like oh well therefore it's not even horror anymore it's like post horror it's just stupid it's just lazy yeah, writing get fucked i like this movie too i i really appreciate her as a director now i, I liked the uh what was the movie she just had out uh the nightingale yes i like the nightingale as well i think she's a great director and i think we can't praise the actress i believe it's s.a davis yeah her performance is next level 
Like, oh I th- my god, the kid is cool. I wanted to defend the kid because I know a lot of people hate the kid, but she's amazing. And really, this yes. movie is them. Like, the neighbor's cool. The sister is sufficiently annoying. Like, everyone has their role to play. But if her and the kid don't work, the movie doesn't work. And for me, they work great. They kind of carry the whole thing in a, in a real way. I think the scenes with her that really, for me, were like just that. Jimi Hendrix fucking playing the national anthem at Woodstock. Yeah. Where it's the scene when she is like possessed when Sam has her like tied up and she's going, it's like the Babadook is struggling to control and there's this gorgeous manifestation of horror on her part and then glee on the Babadook's part and it's just going back and forth. And it's it's just insanity. It's it's just so perfect. And then that part when she like does the the banishing of the Babadook when she's like screaming at it, and she's like, "You have no power here. You are this is my house, and you are trespassing." That is such a primordial and almost like theological, like a revocation of like a spell. Like she's like a fucking sorcerer. Just just. Casting aside a like a, a an unwelcome presence, I just think it's beautiful. It also felt to me like the sort of vibe that sometimes you have to get when you are facing off against sadness, darkness, whatever it is. Like you have to have this feeling of like you are nothing. I I might feel like you are everything, but you are nothing. And oh. life is more than this, you know? Oh, that, that's why I go out in the yard sometimes on a full moon naked and just scream into a mirror, you shall not pass. That's, that's me dealing with my own personal problems. I thought that was just for your OnlyFans. Yes, there's that too. But don't, don't <laughs> tell them that. <laughs> don't tell Becky Jones that. I should sell pictures of my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Hader would buy them. Oh, no. Oh, poor Dave. Yeah. Yeah, so um I, I, I like pairing these two together. I think um they they are different takes on the phenomena that we see a lot, which is unhinged women in horror movies. I think uh unfortunately I think any films that deal with this can feel kinda tropey because it's something that we see a lot of. Uh we don't see as many men losing their shit in horror movies. Uh I kinda think we should, actually. Um, I yeah. think I think you could make a similar movie with a single dad. It would probably be a little less high pitched, but I think it would still be just as upsetting. Um, but I, that being said, it's Ryan Gosling just fucking yelling at his children, yeah, setting the house on fire and throwing cats into the oven. Oh, cats into the oven—that's upsetting. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, you know, uh, another important thing I want to talk about real quick. It's yeah. a very minor aspect of this film. The way it's very clearly treated that she is miserably horny, I think right. is so there is a there's a very distinct sad touch to watching someone who is sad masturbate in a movie. Right. The most miserable scene in Maholland Drive is when Naomi Watts is joylessly and and just sadly trying to give herself an orgasm while like crying. It's it's such an ugly scene 
but it's such a human scene, and it's sort of like, it's undeniably erotic because it deals with sex, but it's also, it, it takes all the joy out of sex, and it just makes it this very completely and absolutely sad thing. And that's how this scene is, like when she's, she's seeing the people making out in the car, and then there's the scene later where she's like using a vibrator and like thinking about her dead husband. And there's just something that makes it that much more heartbreaking and that she can't even escape into the simple joy of, of an orgasm. I've heard about this simple joy, but I can't fucking experience it. <laughs> I do, I do, no, I'm just, I, I just, it, another aspect of depression is that it just fucking saps the glory from everything in life. Right. Including fucking. Well, and it's a reminder that, you know, there's a particular idea of the, the, the widow who has not quite, you know, she's, she's not out there. She hasn't moved on with her life. She still is feeling this deep pain. And, and you know, that the representation of that by the Babadook of that pain is like so dark and hard and difficult, you know, but that... You know, she is denying herself the opportunity to have that kind of satisfaction at this yeah. point because she can't let go of that pain. Yo, I see Davis, if you hear this and you're into that, what's up? Stop. Stop. All right. Hey, uh, thanks, Dana, for these suggestions. Again, if you Thank are you, Dana. a patron and you have some suggestions, hit us up. Um, again, above a certain level. Though, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you a little secret. We'll, we'll listen to your suggestions. Yeah. Don't but tell we'll, anyone, though. But no guarantees unless you give us money. That's how that works. <laughs> but if it's a good idea, we'll just take your good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, head to cinepunks.com to check out more episodes of this. A lot of great articles by you know, people like Nick Spachek and, and Rob Scavarla sometimes and Claire. I'm forgetting her last name because I'm terrible. Oh, I forgot it too. Barnett? Fuck. Barnett? Something like that. She writes the best stuff. Um, She's great. And, and some asshole, Justin P. Lore. I've heard things about him. Um, there's also episodes of this podcast and other great podcasts. Uh, Wine and Cheese, Cinepunks, uh, Cinema Smorgasbord, Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe, which I'm recording an episode with on Thursday on Shadow People. So fucking get ready for that. Get ready for me to shout about the things that scare me. Head to patreon.com backslash cinepunks to see how you can become a patron. You should just check it out. We'd appreciate it. I'll make it worth your while. Um, and also thanks to LVAC um, for their, the stuff they've done, the shirts they've made for us, all that. Head to www.xlvacx.com. Check them out on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore... LVAC. You can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at TheHarbiz666. Um, and until next time, uh, Black Lives Matter. Amen. Peace. Do you scan the night sky in search of unidentified aerial phenomena? Do you lose sleep over strange projects funded by the CIA? Ever wonder which orifices ectoplasm comes out of? Come explore the unexplained and unexplainable with us on our podcast, Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe. We'll talk about telepomancy, haunted railroads, sentient umbrella spirits, mind-altering video games, remote viewing, SpongeBob conspiracy theories, and only gets weirder from there. Each episode will share three 
stories about all the weird things they tell you not to believe. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey! Hey!